is that my greatest struggles have always come when I've tried to take some truth, take some principles that I've discovered in the Bible and apply them in a practical manner to my everyday life. How difficult it is for each one of us to live a life that the Bible calls us to live in such a hostile and difficult culture, in a society that is really counter to everything that the Bible teaches in ways that we're supposed to live. I mean, how are we supposed to live grace-oriented? How are we supposed to live selfless? How are we supposed to live with forgiveness at the forefront of our lives when everything we hear and see and are raised in is based on the worldview that self is the most important thing in the world? That's based in a worldview that tells us that what I want, what I desire, what I think is more important than anything else. So how are we supposed to take the truth that we have from God's Word and live it out if that worldview is so prevalent? Well, the Bible tells us that God leaves us three things to help us in that walk. The first of those is Scripture. That God leaves us Scripture itself so that you and I can read it and discover truth and, and understand and unlock Ways to protect our lives, ways that we can experience abundant life, ways that we can experience all that God teaches in the New Testament. But He also leaves the Holy Spirit. And you see, the Holy Spirit, if the, if the Bible is where we build our foundation, if it is our true north where we are supposed to find absolute truth, then the Holy Spirit is the compass inside of us that always will point us to that true north, that, that Holy Spirit, Jesus in us, that illuminates this Word, that allows this to become more than just words on a page, that allows us to experience His relationship with us and our relationship to Him, but also to convict us and to guide us and to direct us. So we have Scripture and the Holy Spirit. And the third thing He leaves behind is the church. Now, I know today we live in a, a day where the church gets such a bad rap, where the church gets um, so denigrated by even those who call themselves Christians. But you need to understand there is no example in the New Testament of a Christian ever growing spiritually apart from the church. Because it's not a choice that you make. You don't choose not to be a part of the church. Because when you became a believer, when you accepted Jesus Christ, you became a part of His church. And He didn't leave the church behind as, a, as an anchor. He leaves the church behind as sails to help us grow together, to grow as one body, but also to help encourage us. The church is supposed to be a benefit and for a Christian, we have got to have all three of those principles, those truths working together to allow us to overcome the things that we have to face every day. We've got to be diving into Scripture. We've got to be seeking the Holy Spirit, using discernment. And we've got to be plugged into a local faith community. And when all three of those things are working together, we have strength beyond any strength that you can gather on your own. But the problem for many of us is that in reality, the church has become more of a hindrance than it has a help. 
And I think a lot of that has to do with our misunderstanding, our misperception of what the church is supposed to be. I think that's why the church gets such a bad rap today. It's because so many don't understand what the reality of the church is. You see, we have a tendency to, to look at the church through rose-colored glasses. We come expecting that it's going to be kumbaya and happy and all the best of every person is going to be found in the church. But the reality is far from that because think about yourself. You don't bring the best of you when you come to church. You bring the struggles and the hurts and the baggage. And until we get a right view of the church, we will never understand the power that we have in this organization, in this body to affect the world around us. We have a misunderstanding because in reality, the church is a group of struggling, dysfunctional, imperfect people all trying to understand unconditional love and grace and mercy. There are no perfect churches because there's no perfect people. And if you're looking for a perfect church, if you've moved from church to church to church trying to find that perfect church, I don't want to disappoint you, but you won't find it. And if you do find it, please don't join it because you'll mess it up. (laughs) There are no perfect churches. You see, the real church, the true faith community of God, is not so much a gathering of perfect people as it is a rehab hospital for those who have been wounded and hurt that are trying to get well, trying to get healed, and trying to get restored. And when we recognize it for what it is, it changes everything. But when you think about churches, if we wanted to think about how do we gauge a perfect church, if there was ever a church that had a chance to be perfect, it was this church that we're going to start studying this morning at Corinth. Think about what we know about this church at Corinth. It was founded by the greatest church planter, evangelist, missionary, Bible teacher that the world has ever known, the Apostle Paul. He not only founded it, but he stayed around for a year and a half and he taught and he led and he discipled people. He had Priscilla and Aquila there. They were new believers and he was discipling them, living with them for a year and a half, telling them how the church was supposed to be and how the church was supposed to live. And he tells us that that Titus and Silas and Timothy all came to visit him while he was there. He put them to work, it said in Acts 18. He put them to work teaching and discipling. and So you had this incredible church that was founded by the greatest church planter, Bible teacher that there was, the greatest leaders, Timothy who becomes a pastor at Ephesus, Silas who becomes a pastor for the rest of his life. They're all there. Priscilla and Aquila who are great disciples, they're there. It's based on missions and evangelism. That's all Paul did for a year and a half is share the faith and people were getting saved and baptized. And when he writes this letter, the pastor that is there is his hand-picked successor, this guy by the name of Apollos. And what we know about Apollos is, in Acts 18, later on where I ended, we find out that he was discipled by Priscilla and Aquila himself. And that Paul handpicked him because he was known in the Christian world of the day as one of the greatest speakers and the greatest Bible teachers that there were. So if there was ever a church that had a chance that was founded with all the greatest principles and all the greatest things and the greatest leaders, it was the church at Corinth. But yet by the time Paul writes this letter, four years later after he founds this church, 
Corinth is known as the most dysfunctional, hot mess of a church of any of the churches. Matter of fact, so much so that if you were to talk to Bible scholars today, and you'll see after we dive into this church, what kind of church Corinth was, we still consider it, of all the churches we know about in the New Testament, as the most dysfunctional church that there was. So what happened? Well, on the outside looking in, it was perfect. Driving by, going by, hearing its reputation, seeing all that it had going for it, it was perfect. But when you begin to look inside, you begin to see the problems they faced. And Paul discusses them all throughout the letter. And I just want to address a couple of them just so you know the context of why he's writing this letter. And as I describe them, you'll find that the problems that the Corinth church had are, are nothing different than the same problems we have in our churches today. See, the first problem, probably the greatest problem, is there was a power struggle. There were groups within the church all arguing over who was going to be in control. You had a whole group of people that didn't like Apollos, the new pastor, because they preferred the pastor emeritus, the apostle Paul, and the way he did things, and the way he taught, and the way he decided things in the church. And they didn't trust Apollos, this new young pastor. And so they didn't want to follow him, so they were discounting him. And then you had the followers of Apollos who loved what he was doing, so the only way they could lift him up was by putting down the apostle Paul. Then you had another group of people that were in the church. So this is going on in the church. You had another group of people who didn't like Paul and didn't like Apollos. They just wanted to be in charge. And so they put both of them down. And then you had another, a fourth group, who were waiting for everybody to tear each other up so they could take over the church. And all four of these power groups in the church were working against one another, butting heads, trying to decide who was going to be in charge, who was going to make the decisions, who was the better pastor, who was the better teacher, who did it best. Sounds like a lot of churches today, doesn't it? They didn't just have power struggles. They also fought over how they were going to do church. You see, they fought over the methods and the structure of church. You think... Worship wars or something new in the last 30 years it has been going on for 2,000 years. The church of Corinth, they were arguing about how they did it and when they did it and where they did it. Where were they going to meet? How were they going to meet? How often were they going to meet? How long was the meetings going to be? They were arguing over when did they do communion. Not just the, the when and the where and the how. They were arguing over the structure. Do we do communion first? Do we do it last? Do we do it every week? When do we do baptisms? Who gets to do baptisms? Who gets to do communion? Nobody was happy. They were all arguing one after the other. How often do we meet? Whose house do we meet in? What color should the carpet be in the sanctuary? Well, let's do that one in because that's today uh, people arguing. But it's the same difference. They were fighting over petty things that didn't really matter when the issue at hand was control. They were also arguing over spiritual gifts. They developed a spiritual hierarchy. Who was more important spiritually than others? If you spoke in tongues, if you had the spiritual gift of service, if you did this or you did that, then you were more spiritual than everybody else. And so what they did in the church is they developed this group of people. They're more important. They're more spiritual. Maybe they are more important outside the church, so we're going to make them more important in the church. And that eventually developed into where you had the rich and you had the powerful and you had the more spiritual sitting in the front and those that didn't have the money, those that didn't have the power, those that weren't considered spiritually better had to go, just find their place in the homes. 
It was a mess. False teachers had come into the church because of all the turmoil, all the disruption. These teachers came into church and began to, to talk about different things, about Christ's divinity and about Christ's resurrection, and began to teach different things, and nobody would stand up to them. Because everybody was worried that you were going to hurt somebody's feelings. And so nobody confronted them on the truth. And, and all of a sudden, what happens any time in a church that you have false teachers that come in, legalism is not far behind. So then they begin to come in with legalism and the spiritual hierarchy and say that if you wanted to be spiritual like us, then you need to act this way and dress this way and talk this way. And they begin to develop all these rules about what made somebody spiritual. And grace got pushed to the wayside. There was spiritual immorality in the church and it was rampant. The divorce rate of those in the church was going up. Uh, They were, were openly drunk inside the church. They were getting drunk on communion in their worship services. They were lying to one another. They were cheating with one another. They, they were taking each other to court. They had all of a sudden began to think that sex outside of marriage was not a problem. Sex with prostitutes was not a problem. And all of this stuff is going on in the church and nobody is saying anything. You see, they were falling back into their old lifestyle. They wanted to have a foot in their old life and a foot in their new life. And they were trying to make that work. See, they wanted the benefits of the new life and the pleasures of the old life. But you need to understand that the Bible teaches, Jesus teaches himself in Matthew 5, that's impossible. Because I've got to tell you, any time that you try to straddle the fence, any time that you try to live and embrace culture and live and embrace the truth of the Word of God, you'll never win. You'll always fail. And you know which side you'll fail on? You'll fight on, fail on Scripture and truth. Because you're surrounded by people that are elevating this other lifestyle. Their witness was being destroyed. Their work in the community was being destroyed. All of the hope, all of the chances that this church had was being destroyed because they weren't coming together as the body of Christ. Makes you look at our churches today and wonder how we survive. Makes you look at churches today and wonder what's going on in some of them. Makes you feel good about some of our churches. But I want you to understand that's the context that Paul is writing this letter. It's a messed up, dysfunctional, hot mess of a church. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians. If you want to find it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. And if you don't have a Bible that's printed, I think what I'm speaking on this morning is printed. And my hope in, in this series is that by learning from their mess, learning from their problems, you and I are going to gain some insight that you can apply practically to your everyday life. Now, you need to understand, as I told you, this, this was written during Paul's second missionary journey. It's sometime around, our third missionary journey, sometime around 55, 54 A.D. He's in Ephesus and he's writing back to them. Now there is a letter that comes before 1 Corinthians, but we don't have it. 
He talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about this letter that had already gone and come back. And so Paul, being the pastor emeritus of all these churches that he finds, while he's out starting other churches, those churches would write letters to him and say, look, we're struggling with this and we're struggling with that. And he would write letters back, giving them encouragement. So that has already happened once. And they've sent him back a response. And this letter, 1 Corinthians, is his response to them. Now, before I start reading, I just want to tell you a little bit about the town. I've told you about the church. Let me tell you about the culture that they're living in. If you were to go today and visit Corinth in Greece, it is a small, out-of-the-way, nothing town. But at the time of Paul's writing this, it was a metropolis of over 700,000 people. It was a vibrant, important community in the Roman world. Corinth was always a vibrant community because you see, if you look at the Greece and how you study, some of you may have been to Greece. Greece is, has two main land masses that are connected by a small isthmus, a small plain of land that's about four miles wide. And on each side is a sea. So you have two land masses. In the north, you have what we would consider uh, Achaia, which is where Athens is. It is considered the, the Delian League, if you study Greek history. And in the south, you had the Peloponnesians, which was where Sparta was. And then you had all these islands that are off the east coast that were all Greek uh, in, their, in their founding. And on that isthmus, that four-mile-wide group of land between the north and the south, on a plateau on that isthmus, sat the city of Corinth. So every person going north and south to Athens or to Sparta, to Macedonia, to the coast, to the islands, all had to go through Corinth. So it was an incredible um, trade community. It was a diverse community. It had Greeks and it had Jews and it had Romans. It had people from North Africa that were coming through. Everybody traveled through Corinth. Matter of fact, during the Greek Empire, when Greece was at its heyday, so many ships did not want to go around the south of Greece to get from one uh, bay to the other bay. They developed a set of rollers that they would pull these small ships. It was a 300-mile journey around, but they could pull these ships up on these rollers and pull them the four miles from one bay to the other, and it saved them a month and a half travel through some treacherous ground. And so even those going east to west, from ocean to ocean, stopped in Corinth. It was an important city. It was a city known for its entertainment. Most of us today know the Greek games, the Olympics, but they had two sets of Greek games. They had the Olympics and they had the Isthmus games that met every other year. And the Isthmus games were where athletes from all over the known world would come and compete inside of Corinth. It was a known city. But when the Romans came in in 167, they destroyed Corinth, burned it to the ground. And it was not rebuilt until around 67 B.C. when Julius Caesar made it a province. And so in the next hundred years, from 67 to 50 A.D., when we find this letter written, it grows from, from burned to the ground to over 700,000 people. And the thing that made Corinth popular was right above Corinth, there is what was called an Acropolis. In all Greek cities, they had a high hill area. That's what Acropolis means, high hill, city on a hill. They had this Acropolis that overlooked the town. And on that Acropolis, they had a fort that was called the Acro Corinth. 
Now, this was not just some little fort. It was supposedly so big that it could contain every citizen in Corinth and every citizen in the region. Almost a million people could fit on this hill that was walled protecting the city if it ever came under trial. And on that hill, that Acho Corinth set a huge, one of the largest temples in the whole Greek world that was a temple to Aphrodite. And in that temple, you know Aphrodite, if you've studied your Greek history, your Roman history, she was the goddess of love. Well, the priestesses in the temple of Aphrodite were all temple prostitutes. There were over 1,500 at the time of Paul's writing this letter to Corinth, temple prostitutes that lived in the temple of Aphrodite. And every night they would go down from the Echo Corinth into Corinth and ply their trade. So over time, Corinth became synonymous with a city of moral degradation. Matter of fact, they had a Greek slang term for anyone that was a a drunkard or a moral degenerate that meant like a Corinthian. It interpreted like a Corinthian. Corinth was the sin city before Vegas ever came on the line. Its reputation throughout the Roman world was a place of moral depravity. And it's in that context, so when we look at our world today and we say, oh, but our world has gotten so bad. It's so hard to be the church in today's world. It's so hard to be a Christian in today's world. We have nothing today that can compare to what was going on in Corinth. So it's not a wonder why the church was struggling. Because they were so embracing the world that they couldn't allow what God was having them do become a reality in their life. So that's the context by which we see this letter. So let me start reading it. We're just going to look at the introduction. And this morning is really just introduction. It's diving into the letter. But there's some truth that Paul unpacks here that is life-changing if you'll listen to it. And it's real simple. Listen how he starts. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes. I got Sosthenes with me here in Ephesus. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. May grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's real easy if you're reading through the Bible or you're reading a book to just skip through some of these introductions. It's real easy sometimes to just kind of, it's just introduction, you know, it's just how are you doing, hope you're having a good day, hope everything is well, and we just kind of rush to the letter. But this is not one of the cases there. He's not just throwing off some words, he is laying a foundation for some truth that can set the Corinthian church free and can set you and I free if we'll hear it. Now, I want you to listen to it. I'm going to read it to you from the Message Bible, and it says it a little different. But I want to see if you can hear this important truth that he lays out in this introduction. For I, Paul, have been called and sent by Jesus the Messiah according to God's plan, along with my friend Sosthenes. I send this letter to you in God's church in Corinth, Christians who have been cleaned up by Jesus and set apart for a God-filled life. For I include in this greeting all who call out to Jesus, wherever they live, for He is their Messiah as well as ours. You see, what Paul is laying out, what is foundational, before Paul ever dives in and and starts hammering them for their immoral behavior, for the conflicts that they have in the church, he lovingly and, and sweetly reminds them who they are in Jesus Christ. Please hear me. 
One of the greatest struggles that you and I have in our life come when we forget whose we are in Jesus Christ. We get so wrapped up. I see Christians all the time that get convicted and, and they, they get um, parts of their lifestyle. God brings some conviction. The Holy Spirit is trying to get them to, to change their life. And so what we do is we make a list of behaviors that we try to change. We make a list of things. I'm going to do this less and I'm going to do this more and I'm not going to talk about this and I'm not going to watch this or I'm not going to do that. But you see, all of those things without a heart change will just lead to frustration. Because any change that God wants to do in your life, whether you've been a Christian for five years or for 50 years, any change that God's going to bring about in your life starts on the inside and works its way out. And what Paul is saying is before I can confront all of those things that you're doing wrong, those false teachings that you're listening to, the conflicts that you're having in the church, the legalism that you're having, I've got to remind you exactly who you are in Jesus Christ. You see, the greatest struggle for many of you is you've lost sight of who you are in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Satan is a liar and he is the father of lies. And so many Christians listen to the lies of this world much louder than they listen to who they are in Jesus Christ. You see, the world tells you you're not good enough. The world tells you that you'll never make it. The world tells you why change, because you won't do it. It's not worth it. And so we listen to those lies instead of hearing the truth that Paul is trying to lay out. You are special because of Jesus Christ. And when you begin to embrace that, when you begin to recognize that, that outlook, that heart change begins to permeate everything else you do. Now I want to point out just a couple of things that Paul does here because it's important. I want you to hear the words. He starts out by saying what? I, Paul, am coming to you as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why is he doing that? Because he knows the church in Corinth has a whole group of people that say, Who is Paul? Why should we listen to what Paul has to say? Paul's not important. And Paul says, listen, I am not writing this as your buddy. I'm not writing this as the guy who you had over to dinner when I was there three years ago or the guy that you know as the tent maker. I am writing this as the word of Jesus Christ himself. Paul called himself an apostle. And people say, why was Paul an apostle? He, he wasn't the original 12. Because to be an apostle, you had to be called personally by Jesus Christ. And, and have a relationship with him. Paul, on his road to Damascus experience, Jesus Christ appeared to him in bodily form and called him to his mission. And we see that confirmed in Acts when the Holy Spirit, it's only the third time in the book of Acts where you have red letters. Why? Because Jesus speaks personally to Paul. He says, don't give up. See, what Paul is saying is, where is my credibility? Why do you need to listen to me? Because I'm speaking for Jesus he mentions his friend Sosthenes. That's another point of credibility. Everyone there in Corinth would know Sosthenes. He is probably Paul's amanuensis, which means secretary. But he didn't just be secretary. He did all of his writing. Many people think that Paul's thorn in the flesh was his eyesight. People think that Paul couldn't see well. And because he couldn't see well, he couldn't write. Or that he had some kind of deformity that caused him to not be able to correspond with people. Well, if you're an apostle and you're starting all these churches, and you're writing 13 letters that we have in the New Testament, it would be a hindrance to you, a thorn in the flesh, if you couldn't see to write and read. 
And so he has people like Sosthenes with him that had gone with him from Corinth that they would know in Corinth that is writing this letter. So he says, I I have credibility. I want you to be able to hear me. And then in the very first line, he sets apart this truth that is important. He says, I'm writing to the church. Now, the word church is something that we just kind of pass over today because it's so used um, in our everyday language. We forget what that word church means. The word church comes from the German translation uh, of the Greek. The German word that is translated from church in the Greek is kirk. And so as that became the kirk after the Reformation, we began to call it the church. And so that's where we get our English translation of church. But the Greek for church is ecclesia. Ecclesia, which means those who have been called out for a purpose. So if you wanted to retranslate this, Paul is saying, I'm writing to you and I am coming to you from Jesus Christ himself. And I'm writing to all of those who have been called out by Jesus for a purpose. Now, the idea behind Ecclesia itself is that you're not just called out. You are invited specifically to be a part of this group that's called out. And every one of you that accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been personally invited to be a part of that called out group. So Paul, you know, it'd be easy as a parent when your kids do something wrong, when you see them do bad behavior, it is so easy to spend all your time focusing on the behavior that they did. They break something and your first reaction is to want to go in and start screaming, who broke this? Who did this? But as you grow as a parent, you'll recognize that the greatest teaching moments come when we can reinforce good behavior and help them understand that while we may be disappointed in their action or their behavior, we're not disappointed in them. You see what Paul is doing is he's laying a foundation because he is about to blast them. If you read ahead, you'll find in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3 and 4, he blasts them. He calls them out. He confronts them. But before he does that, what he says is, I'm going to lay a foundation that lets you know that although I'm disappointed in all that's going on, I still love you. Why? Because you have been called out by Jesus Christ. And then he uses a term, he says, those who have been sanctified in Christ. And that's the whole key. Matter of fact, it's the key to the whole book. You and I many times forget what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. You see, this idea of sanctification is is really the theological term that we call justification. The Greek word there is practical and personal holiness. What he's saying is, those of you who have accepted Jesus Christ, you have positionally been made right before God. That no matter how immoral you are, no matter how many mistakes you make, no matter how many times that you blow it, in God's eyes, because of Jesus Christ, you are perfect. And we forget that all the time. We beat ourselves up. Because you see, we think our position in God is related to our behavior. That's why so many people are trying to earn their salvation. 
That's why so many people think that if I just do a couple more good things, if, if I just act a different way, if I just add these things on, then maybe somehow I'll earn it. You can't. There is nothing you can do to make you positionally holy before God. Because the Bible says the best that you offer is filthy rags. The only way you can be made right, that you can be redeemed, that you can stand before God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. What Paul is trying to remind them is that Jesus Christ made you right. And when you begin to focus on that, not on your behavior, not on your mistakes, not on your struggles, when you begin to really think about what Jesus did for you, that one day when you stand before God, He's going to see Jesus. You know why? Because when Jesus stood before God, He saw you. You've been made right before God. It's not something you did. It's something He did. And what He's trying to help us understand is that because of what our position is, because of what God's done for us, it changes everything. We lose sight. We forget that we have been imprinted with Jesus Christ on our name. We are a part of His family now. He uses the term saints in the King James Version, which simply means the same thing as sanctified. It means someone who's called out. What Paul is getting to and what he's going to get to in the letter is to say that you have been made right before God, not of anything that you did. You've been forgiven. You've been restored. You've been redeemed. And because of that... It should change everything that you do. See, changing everything you do doesn't make you forgiven. It doesn't make you positionally right before God. But because you're positionally right before God, then practically everything that I do should reflect my position. Everything, all my decisions, because I've been changed. I've got a new worldview. I've got a new way of thinking. I've got a new heart. I've got a new mindset. All of my actions should be reflected on who I am in Jesus Christ. And if we can focus on that, it will all of a sudden start flowing out of it. It says you are part of the church. You are part of those who have been called out for something special. You have been sanctified in God. You've been made right. Why do you still believe that you're less than? Why do you still believe that you can't? Why do you still believe that that you are what the world has said about you? Why do you allow your identity to be wrapped up in what somebody said to you years ago? You are redeemed. You're set free. You're sanctified. And because of that, everything that you do should reflect that. Then he closes it by saying, let me also remind you, I'm not just telling you this. I'm telling everyone who calls out to the name of Jesus. Why was that important? Why did he throw that little statement in? Because he wanted the Christians then and the Christians now to know you're not alone. You're not the only one that struggled. I know when you're on an island and you think your marriage is falling apart, you think nobody else has ever faced this. When you're having to make moral decisions at work, ethical decisions, that where you think nobody's ever been where I've been. When you're having relationship issues with a parent or a child or, or, or something else is going on and, and you're struggling with temptation and giving in to temptation and you think no one else understands. What Paul is saying is yes, they do because you're not alone. 
there are people that have walked that path with you. May just be an introduction, but Paul wants us to know this morning who you are in Jesus Christ, what he did for you. And everything we do reflects out of that. And he also wants you to know that you're not alone. This is just an introduction. Next week we'll dive into all the things that we've been given. But I, I, I don't want you to hear this. If you're struggling this morning, the greatest thing you can do is to spend some time this week meditating, thinking about, thanking God for what He's done for you. Thinking about that you don't have to earn it. You didn't do anything to deserve it. That's grace. Unconditional love means that He loves you. That there is, and I've said this a million times, but it never sinks in. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more than He does right now. And even more importantly, there is nothing you can do to make God love you less than He does right now. When you begin to think about that, when you begin to think of your actions and your behavior, it changes. And the last thing, you're a part of something much bigger than yourself. The reason God had the church is to be a gift to you and I. It's a gift to be able to come and know that we are surrounded by people that struggle. Every one of us in this room struggles. Pastor, 30 years, I struggle. Same struggles you have. Same fight, same battles. But I'm not alone. Not only am I Christ and with me, I have His power and His sanctification, but I also have you lifting me up, praying for me. And I can come together on my worst day and begin to sing about God's reckless love surrounded by people who have experienced it. And I can leave empowered. See, there's hope for you this morning. No matter how much you struggle, no matter how much you've been beat up, no matter how much you've been defeated, there's hope for you this morning. Why? Because you've been set free. You've been redeemed. You've been sanctified in Jesus Christ. I love how Paul ends his little introduction, and that's what I want to end for you this morning. Because, see, if you struggle, this series is going to be for you. The next couple of months, we're going to walk through this book. If you don't struggle, then you need to evaluate your personal walk with Jesus Christ. Because if you're not struggling, you're not trying. Listen to how Paul ends. May all the gifts and benefit that come from God our Father and the Master Jesus Christ be yours. May everything that it means to be the child of God, may you experience it this week. May you feel it. May you walk in it. He says grace and peace to you. Let's pray.